2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: I'm John Fort, in for Kelly Evans, and here is what is ahead on The Exchange. Markets rebounding after yesterday's brief taper tantrum, but the turbo taper still seems to be all systems go. So when do the rate hikes begin? And we'll look at the bull and bear cases for stocks as the Fed tightens. When should you be buying? What should you be buying? Plus, travel restrictions could also be tightening. So, what does that mean for airlines and other travel stocks? Are they worth the worry? We'll get to all of that and more, but we begin
4: with Dom Chu with the number. All right, so John, I got to tell you, the market right now is interesting because yes, it's green across the screen, 200 point gains for the Dow. The S&P is at 46.12, up 1%, half percent gains for the NASDAQ composite. But we've lost some steam, lost some momentum as we hit this kind of midday zone for trading. And by the way, the best performing sector on the S&P right now, believe it or not, is utilities. So I'm not sure what that says about the strength of any major recovery here right now. One of the reasons why we're paying close attention is because we've also seen rates rebound a bit, but then come off their session highs. As you can see, just a hair below 1.45% for the 10-year Treasury note yield, still generally moving lower over the course of the last couple of weeks here and exacerbated by that sell-off that we saw basically on Black Friday. So again, a move lower in rates, generally speaking, we're, we're waiting to see if it kind of breaks out of anywhere in this range here. Right now, it's moving to the downside of that particular zone. And then... Another place that saw some real strength earlier in the day that's waning a little bit right now is the energy sector. Oil prices behind that as well. ExxonMobil up about 2 percent. Some news about some of their carbon emissions ambitions in the coming years and whatnot playing in the headlines today. Chevron's up a percent. Valero Energy up three and a half percent. APA Corp up one percent. And Energy in the ETF, the ticker XLE, up one percent as well. So we'll keep a close eye, a slowdown of momentum. We'll see if it picks up in the afternoon session. John, I'll send things back over to
3: you. Dom, thank you. Sure. Now, Fed Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen are wrapping up their second day of testimony on Capitol Hill. Steve Leisman joins you now with the latest. Steve.
1: Hey, John. Yeah, Fed Chair Powell in his day two of testimony maintained this high level of concern over inflation and reiterated that the Fed will discuss a faster taper timeline at its upcoming meeting in about two weeks. But he said there's no reason it should be disruptive to markets.
5: You can see that, that that the the highly accommodative policy that we have, even after uh, the taper is done, um, it, it, there's really it's it's really appropriate that we that we taper. And as I mentioned yeah, yesterday, I agree in my view it, yeah. it's it's appropriate that we consider at the next meeting tapering faster so that it so that it wraps up a few months earlier.
1: A lot more politics today. Republicans in the hearing working to pin the current inflation on the Biden administration, spending policies, Democrats blaming the pandemic and supply shortages for inflation, and accuse Republicans of ignoring strong economic and job growth. Powell, as he always does, agreed a bit with both sides, saying growth is strong, but that fiscal policy can play a role along with supply bottlenecks on inflation. He added that he was not yet worried about wage increases. So, With the blackout period approaching, we're not likely to hear from Powell again until the December 15th press conference. So unless the new virus variant turns out to be really alarming, the Fed looks on track to speed up the taper.
3: Huh. Steve, it's like the new version of pin the tail on the donkey, pin inflation on the donkey, I suppose, uh, where the Democrats are concerned. But uh, did anything that we heard from Chair Powell today put more meat on the bone from what we seem to be hearing in the lane change up to this point, uh, or, or did the politics get in the way of clarifying any of that?
1: No, John, you had politicians, not Federal Reserve reporters, asking the questions of the chairman today. I would have asked him, how, how much would you do uh, in terms of the taper? I think you have to start thinking about maybe doubling it. Why, why go up in $5 billion increments if you're gonna if you're gonna speed it up, why not speed it up fast? He did say a couple months, so maybe 30 billion is the right number from 15 billion. Uh, but we didn't hear more meat on the bone around that. Uh, and the next question I would ask him is, okay, when are you gonna start hiking?
3: <laughs> well, wish you were asking those questions, Steve. For now, stick around. Let's bring in Bob Pisani for more of the market's reaction to Powell. Uh, Bob, we're we're off the highs, but the testimony has been going on from. Chair Powell and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen for quite a while. What to make of it?
6: You know, I'll tell you, think about how much things have changed in the last week, John. A week ago, the biggest concern for the markets was a modest outbreak of Delta around the world. And would that get any worse? Now we're fighting a two-front war, essentially, with Omicron, which you never heard of a week ago, and now the Federal Reserve, which has sort of flipped on the transitory theme. And that's a problem for the market. So the bulls are are still very aggressive. The bulls are arguing it's likely this whole Omicron thing is going to blend into the Delta wave, maybe. Uh, but they believe the Fed is going to keep up modestly raising rates in 2022. It's unlikely there'll be a sudden fast track. The consumer is going to remain strong. That's probably likely true. The big debate is whether margins will still remain up there. Thirteen and a half percent is the record margin this year. The bulls are arguing it's going to stay up there because they're going to still have pricing power. The bear cases, you know, Omicron is a lot worse. It could lead to a wave of lockdowns. But most of the bears are really focused on the Fed because the Fed raising rates quicker than the market anticipated is the historic killer of, bear, of bull markets. And that every trader knows about and believes in. If that's the case, tech stocks are overpriced right now and have to be sold off. So wh- where are you on the interest rate scenario? Where are you uh, on, on how aggressive the Federal Reserve is going to be? And that's the big debate right
3: now. Bob, what's your sense of how the market has digested uh, the the Omicron news since Friday when there seemed to be this kind of reaction to it? Zoom shot up. I think it was well above 200 a share, up above even 225. But then since then, it's mostly come back down. That's just kind of a a pandemic play example. But meanwhile, things have been moving around some. So uh, has there been some, I guess, Rationalization, or or is this still knee jerk, just from different hammers to the knee?
6: No, it's still completely knee jerk because we don't know how to value tech stocks right now. I hate to keep coming back to that, John. But remember, the answer through all this COVID mess, the answer to every confusion on COVID, COVID, Delta, Omicron, the answer has always been tech wins no matter what happens if it gets better or worse tech always wins so even now with the second wave of delta we were dealing with weeks before by tech europe was notably weaker uh, outside of that cyclical stocks have been in a slow descent for huh. for weeks now many of them hit highs earlier in the year so Buy tech. Now, all of a sudden, if you get notably higher interest rates than anticipated, you can't keep buying tech. It's too expensive, and historically, that won't work. That's why the market's in a bit of a mess right now. It can't quite decide, and so much is going to depend now on whether the market believes that. Powell is going to actually be more aggressive raising rates or even whether the 10-year will, will move up at all. A lot of people are saying the 10-year is telling us this isn't going to happen, that a lot of these concerns are overblown on inflation.
3: Yeah. Speaking of inflation, Steve, a question for you on that, particularly the word transitory. Uh, I thought I heard Powell say something that implied that it's not that his feelings about inflation have changed that much. It's that people read the word transitory differently, and so they might not understand exactly what he means. So that's part of the reason for retiring the word. Uh, yeah. What can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a Fed official will use that kind of uh, uh, rhetoric when it helps him, and it stopped helping him. It stopped uh, explaining anything about Fed policy. It stopped being true, so he, he, he cast it off. I want to get back to something what Bob was saying. I, I think every investor needs to step back and, and think about The portfolio and the investment choices in a Fed that is at least normalizing. I don't know that a Fed is going to have to ratchet up rates and really stamp down the economy in order to get control of inflation. But the idea that the investment prospect is going to be one of zero interest rates forever or even for a year is probably not right. And sometime in the next year, the Fed is going to start to raise rates. And I believe attempt to normalize policy whatever that means so you got to think about what is normal how fast the fed goes how far it goes and what is the underlying value of stocks Bob put up that chart showing that margins were 12 to 13 percent earnings go up pretty much all the time but high margins don't stay there all the time and that's something that needs to be also discussed if workers get higher wages that could cut into margins unclear to me that the companies can protect those sort of high margins all of the time. So things are going to change in the next year. And I think people need to think about that, uh, especially when it comes to those assets more on the periphery that have seen very high valuations.
3: Bob, when was normal? The, I'm sorry. When when was normal?
6: right? Oh, my (laughs) gosh. It was before 2009. I can tell you that. (laughs) I mean, look, one of the things that as a stock market reporter I've had to deal with is the role of liquidity in helping the stock market. I'm I'm an old school guy. I'm a fundamental guy. Stocks are determined by dividends, future dividend streams, future earnings stream, and a speculative element. We call it the market multiple, how much you're willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. But beyond that, there is a whole new school that has developed since two thousand nine to study liquidity liquidity is literally how much money is there out there and the federal reserve has been pumping money for the last twelve or thirteen years into the economy much of its found its way into the stock market and so everybody bulls and bears agree the market is higher because of the feds liquidity how much higher would it be if the fed hadn't done anything we don't know but it's definitely higher because of that and so we're trying to address what does all this liquidity mean, and what is withdrawal of liquidity mean. That's why the market freaks out. We don't have an answer. We don't have a historical precedent for this kind of uh, liquidity tidal wave that the Fed has been engaged in.
3: Yeah, it's been a long time. I, I guess we're about to find out. Steve, Bob, thank you. Now my next guests say don't fear a faster taper as it doesn't necessarily mean the Fed is going to be less accommodative. Joining me now Uh, With how to play it are Mark Avalon, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors, and Marianne Montaigne, portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Mark, uh, accommodative in what way?
7: Well, a taper, they're, they're, they're withdrawing this huge stimulus, the bond buying program. but That's a long way off from raising rates. Global rates are nowhere near positive in many developed countries. Global growth is gonna be is gonna struggle with the same issues that they faced pre-COVID. Europe hasn't solved their problem, the excessive regulation, the aging populations, Japan, the same problems over there. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves by thinking that the global economy is gonna be roaring. We don't operate in a vacuum. So I think we will finish the taper and then there'll be a pause before there's any Fed action. I think the bond market is telling us that. And I think that's another reason why tech stocks have done well.
3: Huh, Marianne, Though I wonder, kind of piggybacking off that last conversation that Steve and Bob and I were just having, th- things are so far from normal, especially with the amount of volume that retail investors have in this market, the amount of options trading, the amount of trading on margin that... I- As things, as conditions change, I'm not sure uh, how volatile the market is going to be in response to that. What do you think?
2: Well, first of all, there's no such thing as normal. I've been around a long time and there's always excesses here and excesses there. And we're just noting some of them, as you said, John. Uh, But what I think is that um, with that, uh, and I agree with Mark, uh, there's not a decision to raise rates. Uh, But given the specter of another COVID mutation, investors have been moving to quality across the board. And, uh, you know, that's driving up the price of bonds and driving down yields on the benchmark 10-year at least. Um, We think that trading in the last few days may be part of year-end window dressing as losses were taken in small-cap software stocks particularly. And uh, in the movement toward quality, I think what most people don't realize is that Apple, which this morning I heard compared to a bond for some odd reason, (laughs) uh, with its 30 multiple on next year's earnings and slowing growth next year, uh, what people don't realize, it's it's now a larger percentage of the S&P than the staples sector, the energy sector, real estate and utility sectors. Uh, that's way beyond normal. That's that's way out there. Um, But, you know, there's caveats to everything, including the Fed's decision about the Omicron variant and treatments, too, in the coming days. And so we still believe the health of the economy depends on the health of the population.
3: Well, you said Apple. So maybe the other side of that, Mark, I think you like it, right? Well, we do. I think there is such a thing as an entry point and and
7: maybe not chasing after, especially after it's run up so much this week. But certainly, Apple is generational. My my kid doesn't know anyone who doesn't have an Apple. And I think that's replayed throughout the country. And there's going to be generations upon generations of people expanding into the Apple ecosystem. They're, They're buying accessories. The Apple TV is going to be one of the winners in streaming. So it's a question of what price you want to get in. And we think streaming is going to be a big driver in the future. And that's one area that we think will be strong, whether there's a COVID, melt up again. Or even if we have more of a reopening, we think that's going to be the delivery system.
3: Apple's poised in so many areas to benefit. Well, Marianne, you said there is no normal. But I wonder, is there a safe? And people seem to be kind of rushing to Apple for safety for many of the reasons that Mark mentioned. You like gold. Uh, is, Is that for the traditional safety reasons?
2: Yeah, it's uh, an, as inflation expectations are moving higher for longer. Uh, it's historically served as a store of wealth in an inflationary environment. We don't have that history in any other asset class. And in a highly volatile market, it's a safe harbor. And that's what we've been seeing for the last three weeks. Uh could continue through year end. So I, I do think gold is a good uh, a good place to be.
3: All right. Well, I, I guess. Gold is still gold, even if to some people, Apple is like a bond. Can't figure that one out. Um, Mark, Marianne, thank you. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Still ahead, chip stocks have tripled since their March 2020 lows. Several names are coming off their best months in years. So, is there still room to run, or are the semis set for a pullback? Plus, we will speak with the CEO of IBM's Red Hat unit about the state of software and what's next for the cloud. And as we head to break, Here's a look at the S&P sector heat map. Ten of the 11 sectors are in the green with utilities leading the way. The Exchange is back after this.
1: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
8: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today, pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
3: Welcome back. A handful of chipmakers, including Lamb Research and NXP, hitting record highs today. More than half of the SMH ETF components are less than 5% away from their all-time highs. But with competition in the space heating up, can these rallies continue? Christina Parts and Nebulas joins me with more. Christina?
9: Well, John, the rallies can, are continuing today, like you mentioned, although semiconductor chips are expected to be in short supply well into next year. That's according to Deloitte Global's annual report, but remains pretty consistent with reports from chip makers such as Intel and NVIDIA. So you're wondering why? Well, we know a significant surge in demand driven by digital transformations and also accelerated by the pandemic. And so that's driving prices higher for these stocks. Semiconductor ETFs like Vanek and iShares, SemiPo, posting their best monthly gains in a year. Qualcomm has seen its best month since April 2019, AMD's best since July 2020, and NVIDIA posting its best month since May 2017. Intel, though, I want to focus on that, which is relatively flat for the month, is now just $5 billion in market cap away from being eclipsed by AMD in total size. So as the shortage persists, demand and competition keeps ramping up, companies are stepping in to produce their own custom chips to fill the gaps. For example, Amazon Web Services, the latest to announce on Tuesday two new custom computing chips seen as future alternatives to both Intel and Nvidia. Here is the AWS CEO, John, I know who you spoke to uh, earlier on CNBC on why their chips are competitive.
4: These are really important and and, uh, uh, material advances in price performance and uh, customers just keep demanding more and more and more.
9: And demand that the United States wants to accommodate. The CHIPS Act could authorize $52 billion in subsidies for domestic semiconductors manufacturing, but is still sitting in the House after passing the Senate in June. It's up to Capitol Hill to see if production will ramp up and help fill those shortages. John?
3: Yeah, a lot at stake there, Christina. Thanks. With more companies moving uh, chip production, or at least chip design, I should say, in-house, a new report from B of A Securities, points out that why U.S. firms will make up 60% of global chip revenues, production capacity has dropped from 37% in 1990 to just 13% in 2020. So as the U.S. ramps up production, which companies will be the winners? Let's bring in Vivek Arya, uh, Senior Semiconductors Analyst with B of A Securities. Vivek, uh, great to have you. So I, I wonder, it's interesting here, you got global foundries in the mix, which isn't on the latest process technologies. You've got Intel, which wants to be on the latest process technologies. And you've got this huge divergence in valuations where AMD is just now within spitting distance uh, of Intel. Uh, whereas a little bit ago, it, it was just crossing hundred bucks a share. Now it's over 150. So so where do you place your bets here?
10: Sure, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, like you said, a lot of cross currents. And I think the, the big picture view is that over the last 30 years, The semiconductor industry has essentially created these centers of excellence. Uh, You have a lot of the advanced chip design being done in U.S. and Europe. You have a lot of the consumables, a lot of the raw materials in Japan. You have the advanced logic fabs in Taiwan. And you have a lot of the memory production being led by the Koreans. And that structure has been very profitable and optimal for the semiconductor industry. But as you pointed out in the segment before, What we are seeing now is that combination of supply disruptions, there is COVID-related disruptions, and on top of it, there is this longer-term issue around geopolitics where every country in the world wants to be self-sufficient in the production of uh, semiconductors. Right. So how does this play out? I think this plays out in the lagging edge over the next year to two, where there is a lot more capacity uh, that companies such as a Texas Instruments, Microchip, Global Foundries you mentioned are putting on. But then the leading edge side will probably take a number of years, anywhere between three to five years, uh, in terms of uh, different countries becoming self-sufficient. And in our view. The, be- the most important beneficiaries of this trend will be the semicap equipment uh, makers, such as a KLA, Applied Materials, uh, LAM Research, Teradyne, and others.
3: Yeah, and I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure if it's in your coverage universe, but ASML might also fall in there. It, which leads to my next question. It sounds like you're leaning toward equipment here, but between, say, design, packaging, process, technology, and equipment, what do you think is going to be most strategic in semiconductors overall, say, over the next three to five years, Uh, so if investors see that they think a company has a particular advantage in one of those areas, that's where uh, they should lean.
10: Sure, John. I think uh, from our perspective, the three big trends in semis are cloud, cars, and capex. So those are the three Cs in semis. And in cloud, it's essentially companies that are serving the cloud makers, uh, serving the new metaverse uh, trend. So those are the NVIDIA, the AMD, the Marvell, the Broadcoms of the world, i think on the capex side that's where the semicap equipment uh, companies including asml kla applied materials lam research and, and uh, teradyne so it will take a combination because the cloud companies are really extending the boundaries of technology they are creating that deeper relationship they you know they are really extending uh, what it means for semiconductor companies to uh, be more productive uh, in this new cloud computing era hmm. but on the other side you also need the backend Uh, to come in and make sure that those products are designed and delivered with a great deal of uh, scale and reliability. So So I think it's it's, a complementary approach.
3: What in a way, though, is is a fair price to pay for a hot product? And by product, I mean stock in this case. I look at, say, Qualcomm, AMD, NVIDIA, all of them doing extraordinarily well, but all of them perhaps expensive, depending on uh, how well you think they can do from here. How do you judge what's a good price?
10: Sure. So uh, the first thing uh, I think we have seen in technology stocks is uh, that what what really drives them is the size of the opportunity, and the company's uh, competitive uh, position and its execution. And if we look over the next five or ten years, I think there is a lot more of the workloads that are moving to cloud, and that requires very advanced level of scale. IP, working with the software ecosystems. And in my view, very few companies are able to achieve that. Someone like NVIDIA is absolutely at the forefront uh, of that. But in addition to what's happening in the cloud and the data center, so kind of the uh, the main part of the network, you also have companies coming up on the edge uh, as more intelligence spreads uh, to the edge like the ones you you mentioned. Uh, In terms of valuation, the other point I would make is if you look at the SOX index right now, It's basically trading in line uh, with uh, the broader S&P 500, but the companies here are extremely profitable. And we are talking about profitability levels that are two to three times what you would see from other uh, industrial companies. And that's why we think some of these valuations are justifiable since these companies are uh, providing access to some of the most important long-term trends in the market.
3: Okay. Uh, Certainly keep an eye on that. Vivek Arya, thank you. Thank you. Now, before we go, we mentioned AMD. Jim Cramer writing in his newsletter today that his charitable trust is selling 50 shares solely for portfolio management purposes. He says he remains bullish on the company in the long term and that AMD has stood out as one of the better relative performers during this market volatility. For more of Jim's insights, sign up for the CNBC Investing Club newsletter by pointing your phone's camera, at that QR code right there on the right side of your screen or you can go to cnbc.com slash investing club and still ahead it has been a turbulent re- week for airlines as they deal with the new covid variant we will get the trade coming up and as we head to break let's do a little show and tell that's where we show you the chart and tell the story Robinhood is on pace for its 11th day of losses in the past 12 down 30% in that time ARK Invest CEO, Kathy Wood, joined Sarah Eisen for a CNBC Pro Talk this morning, where she explained why she's still bullish on the name. For that full interview, you can head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Here's a sneak peek at what she said.
1: At the
2: end of the day, I, we do think the stock is settling down. It has the best user interface out there for retail investors, uh, and Despite the controversies, uh, we see uh, a lot of evidence that uh, that uh, investors on Robinhood are not just trading like crazy high-frequency traders.
8: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, "You Might Be Right," former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore. And Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
3: Welcome back to the exchange markets losing steam with the Dow. Off-session lows of 119 points. Today's gains, uh, still not enough to completely offset yesterday's losses. But here's some of the movers this hour. The retail ETF, XRT, is lower today, down 3% since Monday, putting it on pace for its third straight week of losses. That's its longest losing streak since March 2020. Krispy Kreme is down 7% after Goldman downgraded the name from neutral to sell and set a price target of $14 a share. The firm says it will struggle to deal with inflation as labor, delivery and ingredient costs continue to rise. stock is down 36% since going public in July and has never surpassed its first day closing price of $21 a share. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
11: Hi, John, and here's what's happening at this hour. A fourth student has died from the shooting at a Michigan high school on Tuesday. Seven other victims were seriously injured and hospitalized, including a 14-year-old girl who remains on a ventilator after surgery. The 15-year-old suspect has still not discussed the incident with police. And on the news tonight, how prosecutors may charge the suspect and the latest details on how the shootings unfolded. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. President Biden assuring Americans that shelves will be stocked and efforts to end supply chain bottlenecks are working.
12: We're heading into a holiday season on very strong shape. It's not because of luck. We averted potential crisis by figuring out what needed to get fixed, and then we brought to people together to do the hard work of fixing it.
11: And the House Freedom Caucus wants Senate Republicans to block efforts to keep the federal government from running out of money. The group says that Republicans should oppose a continuing resolution to fund the government unless President Biden ends federal vaccine mandates. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you.
3: Rahel, thank you. Now we've got a news alert in the sports and gambling space. Contessa Brewer, could Las Vegas be picking Oakland's pocket again?
0: Well, guess what, John? The news that we have comes from the Oakland A's president, Dave Cavall, who told the Las Vegas Review-Journal that they had picked a site for a potential ballpark for the A's to move. They have already received the blessing from the MLB to consider the move to Las Vegas. And now I'm hearing from several sources here on the ground at the SBC sports betting conference in Secaucus, New Jersey, that the site is likely Bally's Tropicana. So Tropicana is the casino on the Strip, and Bally's is the owner of that. GLPI is the REIT that owns the land underneath it, but there's a lot of land available, certainly enough, for a professional baseball stadium to go onto the Tropicana site. I'm also hearing that under consideration has been the golf course at Wind Resort, uh, and also a lot that Caesars has, although I've heard definitively that Caesars is no longer in the running in terms of a potential baseball site. What stands in the way of the O's actually getting this bid done? Well, first, a bid on the Tropicana would have to be accepted by Valleys. Secondly, they would have to figure out what that public private financing plan looks like. That's a very important piece for MLB. And don't forget that the public-private financing has already happened for Allegiant Stadium, where the Raiders play, and also for the new convention center there. So definitely hurdles to get over before the A's actually make the move to Las Vegas. But it looks like the favored site for now is Bally's Tropicana.
3: All right. Yeah. First the Raiders, then the A's. Uh, Contessa, thank you. Coming up, airlines lower once again today with the travel rule book on testing and tracing evolving. Should you stay clear of the space or buy the dip? That is next. Well, it's been a wild week for the travel sector thanks to the uncertainty over the Omicron variant. CDC is now ordering U.S. airlines to disclose passengers who have been to South Africa. Carriers are getting hit hard. Delta United and American down double digits for the week. The Biden administration also considering additional COVID testing requirements for air travelers entering the country. So given the headwinds, should you sit this trade out? Joining me now, is Steve Grasso, Grasso Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Steve, I'm guessing based on the names that I see here, that domestic names might be the way to go, given the COVID uh, situation, you think?
5: Yeah, John, I think that that's. Probably the way I play this is the same way that I played the original uh, pandemic, where if you looked at what was going to really get hit hard, it was gonna be international travel. So the way I thought about that back in 2020 was what is going to come on or come back online quicker. For me, it was the domestic airlines. And now if you look at it the same way, uh, European, international travel is probably going to be a little bit slower to come back online. And if people want to go on vacation, where are they going to go? They're probably going to stay at home in the United States. Just less onerous as far as restrictions. And and I think that the ones that are going to benefit are going to be your Spirit Airlines, the Jet Blues of the world, and to a lesser extent, uh, LUV. Yeah, why to so a lesser the, extent? The I was only wondering- other thing... I was wondering why I didn't see
3: Southwestern yeah. there. Why, why not?
5: Uh, because you have, you, have a, you have a little bit of the South American and Caribbean travel in there, mm. which is a larger piece than the other ones that, that I would start off with. JetBlue has expanded, obviously, out of the continental United States as well, but it's known to be a more of a domestic. It's associated with being more domestic uh, than that.
3: How sensitive are these even domestic names going to be to uh, energy prices and to headlines around the holidays about how much travel uh, people are doing for Christmas and maybe even domestically looking for warm weather climbs uh, during that period and a little after?
5: Yeah, I think, I think you're going to have to say, well, first of all, as a professional trader for, for just about 30 years you have to realize that the market really is a forward-looking mechanism. So a lot of this is already in the stock price. So the way I look at these prices of these stocks and the drawdowns that we've seen recently, John, is that if you go back to 2020, those lows that we saw, saw in, in late April of 2020, and then the peaks that we saw just about a year later in all these airlines, the retracements or the backing up of stock price is either at the 50% level or more. So you're getting an incredible discount on a lot of these names. Everything that you just mentioned is already quote unquote in the name in a lot of these uh, discounts that we've seen recently. So if you look at the international travelers or whether it's American or whether it's a Delta, Delta had a huge amount carved out because you're assuming that corporate travel is never coming back. Right. We know that's not the case. And we know there's a couple of headwinds that you just stated that are right in front of us. I just think that if you have the stomach to sit and hold a position in these international travelers and the domestic airlines, I think that you will be rewarded handsomely if you can extend that duration in your position. Hey, everybody likes an
3: airline discount. Steve Grasso, thank you. Coming up, with the deadline fast approaching, the race to avoid a government shutdown just got more contentious. We'll tell you why next. Welcome back. Now that Turkey Day is over, it's time to play chicken. With just two days until Friday's deadline, Republicans are now publicly threatening to force a government shutdown if Democrats don't give in to their demands regarding vaccine mandates. Elon Moy has been following that fight, joins me now with the latest. Elon.
13: Well, John, this is a very different place from where we were even just 24 hours ago when both sides sounded confident that they could reach a deal before Friday at midnight. Now that optimism is waning, as conservatives warn, they're willing to derail this entire process to protest the president's vaccine mandates. In a letter out today, the House Freedom Caucus urged the use of all procedural tools to deny timely passage of a continuing resolution unless it prohibits funding for vaccine mandates and enforcement. That means the government could risk winding up in a weekend shutdown that Democrats say would only backfire on Republicans.
6: They think somehow creating chaos, which they're masters of, will hurt President Biden. It's not going to work. We're prepared to act.
13: The other problem is Republicans and Democrats still have not agreed for how long any stopgap measure should last, whether it should go into late January or into February. The House was supposed to vote on that funding measure today. But, John, right now, it is literally a question mark on the official schedule. Back over to you.
3: Uh, Elon, what happens if they don't reach a deal? And what are some of the politics... Behind this move, are vaccine mandates so unpopular with the Republican base that even if a deal gets done, the fact that they put up this resistance is going to be beneficial?
13: Yeah, so the reality is that eventually lawmakers will fund the government. There are enough votes to pass this continuing resolution. The question is, how long does it take them in order to do that? And they might miss that Friday deadline. And this is causing a little bit of a rift within the Republican Party because some Republicans, even those who are against the vaccine mandate, say this is not the right way to draw an attention to this issue at a time when we're you know battling new variants. Do you really want to even flirt with a government shutdown, even if it's just a Short one. So Republicans are debating amongst themselves the best way to go about criticizing this policy that many of them don't agree with.
3: Huh. Well, uh, we'll see what the polling says about the popularity of the policies, and oftentimes that has an impact on at least how long these things take. Elon, thank you. Up next, despite shares of IBM falling nearly 12% since the acquisition of Red Hat, the deal has proven to be a multi billion dollar boost to IBM's overall business. We'll talk to the Red Hat CEO about that and the future of cloud computing next. The Exchange, we'll be right back. Welcome back. I want to get a check on the market here. You can see the NASDAQ has turned negative. The Dow is heading toward the flat line. S&P, uh, which had been higher by well over a percent, is now just fractionally higher. This after reports that there may be the first case of the COVID variant, the Omicron variant uh, in California. We'll have more on that as we get it, but the uh, major indices reacting negatively uh, to that as they have since uh, Friday, when news of the variant first uh, emerged and began to hit markets. Now, meanwhile, it's been more than two years since IBM bought cloud company Red Hat for $34 billion, the largest software acquisition at the time. Since then, Red Hat has driven nearly $3.5 billion in business for Big Blue, and with experts predicting the online shopping boom and work from home, uh, sticking around trends, sticking around post-pandemic, enterprise software has become even more important. So what's next for the software companies behind that technology? Joining me now is the president and CEO of Red Hat, Paul Cormier. Paul, Paul uh, great to have you. This I like to call this Cloud Week. We've got AWS reInvent happening right now. And uh, not only hybrid, but multi-cloud have become important increasingly important trends in the space and Red Hat has been there uh, longer than anybody one could uh, argue. How is that affecting the, the requests that you're getting from customers?
12: Well I mean you know it really is uh, everything we hear about from customers you know w- one of the things we've seen is coming for a long time because open source software and Linux has really been is really the heart of the technology behind cloud computing, all cloud computing for, for that matter you know open source development has been the model where innovations really grown over the last 15 10 15 20 years especially in the in- infrastructure space in the enterprise essentially open source has become mainstream open source development and linux has become mainstream so so this is what we're this is what our customers are, are starting to look for, at for their future and so we we hear these things from them every day and and that's what we're addressing
3: Now, some months ago, I remember talking to IBM CEO Arvind Krishna about how, hey, IBM's looking to serve customers uh, however they want to be served, even if it means not necessarily getting the sale for a different IBM division. Now, uh, AWS is coming after mainframes uh, this week at reInvent, trying to get people to migrate off of them. That's a big business for IBM. How much is Red Hat? able to serve the type of customer that's even maybe moving off of other IBM technology?
12: Well, you know, whether whether it's mainframe or uh, other technologies that are in the current data center, I mean, we're talking here about a shift over time. I mean, cloud computing has been around for 14 years, something like that, uh, maybe a little longer. And, uh, you know, early on when we talked cloud, a lot of people were saying we're going, every application is going to the cloud tomorrow. That really, once they get into that and looked at that, that's really kind of impractical. And what's and what CIOs are doing today is they're looking to to look what their overall architecture is going is looking like and where applications need to sit. Some will sit on premise. Some will sit out in one cloud. Some will sit out in different clouds. Mm. That's what we've been building to for the last eight plus years. Is that architecture? We saw that coming because, as I said earlier. Most of this innovation in our, in our, in, in, is built around Linux and open source, and, and we've been helping our customers get on that technology for over 20 years now.
3: A really important trend, especially as businesses and consumers rely more on technology during these times. Paul, thank you. Paul Cormier, CEO of Red Hat.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.